Hey there, real quick before we begin today's episode of Growing Pulse Crops, I have a small but very important request of you. Please, if you could, just I want you to hit pause for just a few minutes to take our audience survey. The link for it is in the very top of the show notes to this episode. So no matter what podcast player or website you're listening to this from, it should be right there at the top of the screen. You see, the show is made possible by the generous support of our sponsors, and they like to know if their money is going to good use to produce productive, valuable content. And also producer Dr. Audrey Kalisle and I like to know how we're doing and if we can make this more interesting or more valuable for you as well. So please take just a few minutes now and click that link for the audience survey in the show notes to give us your feedback. It'll only take a few minutes and I promise it is very much appreciated. This is Growing Pulse Crops and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today we're talking about winter peas with Dr. Steve Van Vliet. Multiple years, my average yield of my winter peas was 6,000 pounds. That's between all the varieties. Spring pea will range from 2,500 pounds to, if it's a gray year, we'll go up to 4,500 pounds. But I can, I can get 7,000 or 7,500 pounds of some of the different winter pea varieties. That's the part that makes me super excited. Dr. Steve Van Vliet spent about 18 years as a regional extension specialist at Washington State University, and today is a research agronomist for the McGregor Company. For most of his career, pulses have been an important part of his work, and he joins the show today to talk about his excitement for the potential for winter peas. Now, to clarify, we're not really talking about Austrian winter peas here, which are more feed-grade peas that are smaller in size and darker in color. We're talking about food-grade winter peas, which have been available for several years now in certain growing areas. Steve says the differences between the Austrian winter peas and the winter peas we're talking about are these are larger in size of at least 17 grams or so. They have a clear seed coat and either a green or yellow cotyledon. Steve talks about why he believes this crop is a great option for a lot more growers than are currently using them today, with the caveat that you have to have access to a market and some considerations for growing winter peas, including seeding depths and timing and pest and disease management. First, I asked Steve to share a little bit about what excites him most about winter peas. Really flexibility. You know, it was, can we grow these in different zones? Primarily, these were grown in areas which you get the moisture. They're grown in, in the Palouse region. They're grown down in Walla Walla region in my areas. They're grown in, you know, Montana and some of these other places. But where you get moisture at the right time, where it's not extremely dry land location. Everything above, I would say, an annual precipitation of 16 inches, something like that, 16, 18 inches. Anything below that, there was no pea production. Really, it was all wheat and fallow systems. And so when it came to the winter side of things, does that have a fit? And that's the real flexibility when it comes to the differences between winter and spring peas. We can start moving it into these drier zones. Another part of the flexibility is they flower earlier. You know, I mean, I can go into more of the biology of this if we want to, but definitely when it comes to the differences, winter peas, they'll flower earlier, they'll flower a little bit longer. So longevity of flowering is very, very important for filling the seed, getting higher yield. Also, they tiller. The interesting thing about peas, too, when it comes to winter peas and spring peas, Spring peas, they have hypogeal emergence. So one thing that's great about pea compared to wheat plants and some of these other plants, 
is they keep their cotyledon below the ground, okay? So when they're coming up, if there's frost temperatures, you know, freezing nights, frost times, they won't get as damaged from the freezing and cold conditions. We've had frosts that have just been massive. All it does is kind of just burn off the tips of the peas. They'll grow right back. They also tiller. So they'll tiller. It's kind of like the difference between spring wheat and winter wheat. You know, spring wheat gets one tiller, maybe two if you're lucky, and winter wheat multiple tillers. Well, it's the same type of thing in peas. So do you get tillers coming off peas? Winter peas, for sure, yes. You'll get four or five tillers off a winter pea, and you'll just get that one main stem from a spring pea. So the yield can be 150 to 300 times that amount when it comes to winter peas versus spring peas. So not only yield, it fits into the dryland areas better. You know, it's in a rotational crop, gives them options there. It's just like spring peas, fixes nitrogen, but it fixes more nitrogen. You have more plants, you have more biomass, and you have higher yield, like I just mentioned, 150 to 300 times higher in yield. So amount of nitrogen left in the soil for a following crop coming back in to a grain crop is usually what they'll do. Then you have that additional nitrogen, which saves on fertilizer costs. So there's a lot of advantages. I really enjoy the winter pea side, side of things. You know, sometimes industry even gives me a hard time and they're saying, well, where's the value? That's the value. I mean, okay, yes, you're not making a ton of money on peas necessarily, but as for the amount of benefit and nutritional benefit to the following crop, not only are you fixing a lot of nitrogen, getting the benefit for the following crop, flowering early, so you don't have that heat stress times. That's the difference with spring peas. I'm not knocking spring peas. I mean, it's fantastic. They're here a long time before winter peas. But in our climatic zones and with climate change or whatever, variation in climate, there's going to be times it gets hot during those flowering times. Well, the winter peas avoid that. And so you don't have abortion of the pods and flower abortion and lower yield like you can in the, in the spring peak side of things. So you get additional nitrogen, you get a lot more biomass, you get a lot more fertility going into the soil. It's giving you better soil health, better you know, yields that are gonna give you better value, even at a low, low rate, even if it's 10 cents per pound. So in multiple years, my average yield of my winter peas was 6,000 pounds. That's between all the varieties. If you averaged them all out, it was 6,000 to 6,500 pounds. Spring pea, we don't get close. Spring pea will range from 2,500 pounds. If it's a gray year, we'll go up to 4,500 pounds. I can get 7,000 or 7,500 pounds off some of the different winter pea varieties. So that's the, that's the part that makes me super excited. Yeah, so that's some of the key differences, but uh, what about some of the similarities if somebody's listening and they've grown spring peas and, and now maybe want to give winter peas a try? One thing that's very similar on spring peas and winter peas and that you have to pay attention to is starting out early, okay? So you make sure you have good seed treatments. Is there stuff that attacks them both? Absolutely. What could be a problem with winter peas that's not a problem as much with spring peas 
could be some things such as Pythium. It sits in moist, moister soils for longer. Aphanomyces. You know, you can deal with some of these soil-borne diseases that like higher moisture conditions, fusariums. So you have to have a good seed treat no matter what you do. You have to inoculate too. I mean, a lot of people in our area, if they've grown peas, they've grown legumes over a long period of time, they, they don't necessarily inoculate on peas. Chickpeas, yes, you always do no matter what. But they say, okay, we already have some of the natural rhizobium. Uh, I always put inoculant on, no matter what. So you always have a good seed treat. You always put on rhizobium, leguminosic, and you always seed into moisture. So that becomes more a difficult situation if you're going in these dryland zones. But in the winter side of things, not as much. Because you can seed late. They're very, very tolerant to cold. So you can even what they call dormant seeding, and you can seed quite late, but you can seed them deep. And that's another thing. I, I seed my springs and my winters at the same depth. I mean, grains aren't going to handle this. Canola definitely is not going to handle some of the, you know, the seeding depths that we have to go to. You can go up to five inches. Now, would I suggest that? No. But those things will come through cement almost. I mean, maybe that's a little exaggeration, but they're pretty impressive. Peas are going to come up, but you have to seed them in the moisture. It has to be about a half inch under the moisture. You know, you don't want a dry zone right where the seed is between the dry soil and slightly moist. You want to seed them always in the moisture. It's not like grains that you can just seed out, seed in the dust more or less and wait for the moisture to come. It doesn't work that well with, with peas. So that's another thing. Get it into moisture. And this is spring and winter alike. And I seed really my peas, all my peas at three inches. Do I need to seed the spring peas at three inches? No, they're going to come perfectly fine. Chickpeas, my lentils, my peas have all come perfectly fine from that depth. The two inch level is great. I do not go anything less than two inches. No way, especially with winter peas, you know. I get them down in the soil. They'll come. They'll break through crusts. They're, they're very strong at getting up. And how about the genetics of, of winter peas? Have they developed quite a bit since you got into this uh, to, to kind of help with issues that might be specific to winter that might you know, not be as severe in spring? Yes, they have. And also there's become some good seed treatments that we actually have. I mean, some of the things we've seen is pythium. Pythium's everywhere. Now, pythium... It affects chickpeas a lot more. I even have a publication on that with chickpeas, but it also influences peas a lot too. The fusariums, the pythiums, do they have resistance? Yes. Through the breeding process of doing this, they have resistance to some of these different things. We have pockets that has fusarium wilt and high populations of it. And when we get into that, there's been some great breeding efforts that pea varieties are resistant to, there's two different races of fusarium that we have up here. There's fusarium race one, fusarium race two. So race two has really become a problem in some of our zones. And we have varieties that are resistant to this. So with the breeding efforts, yes, it's been amazing on what they've been able to develop over time. You know, it's not only developing the winter pea and the tolerance to the cold, you know, 
because it's really a plant that it's not like wheat. Okay. Wheat has a different type of winter structure of going through the winter. These are tolerant of freezing temperatures. So, yes, the advances have been quite incredible on the improvement when it comes to the genetics, the cold tolerance. And, of course, they, they used a lot of the genetics from at first doing crosses using Austrian winter peas and how they stand up. If you ever knew about Austrian winter peas and the, like the first Columbia pea that came out, very similar. It was a food grade pea, but it was very similar in Austrian winter peas that it kind of just laid along the ground. And even if it's a spring, but when they're first developing some of these different pea lines, they didn't stand up very well. Couldn't harvest them straight up. I mean, sometimes you have to have lifters now because there's so much biomass. But they really stand up so you can just harvest them freestanding. And that's an advantage. So you're getting up there. They're producing more tillers, produce more pods. You know, they have a longer time to flower, to fill the seed. So that's an advantage in everything. Breeding efforts have come a long way, not only in spring, but also in that winter. Hmm. Wow. And, and, you know, give us a sense, if, if you can, of how, how popular have winter peas become today? And what are still the, the continued barriers to, uh, to adoption of, of this crop by farmers that are used to growing peas, but maybe haven't tried winter peas? That's the interesting thing. I think this is where we come down to the struggles, okay? If I look at the Palouse side of things, they are used to growing winter wheat, some kind of spring crop, and then a legume. And primarily, they're using chickpeas because they're getting the value. They are concerned with what? Your economic return, okay? So what's our ROI on that? That's what they are concerned about. So when they are planting these, why haven't they adopted and why haven't they gone if I'm talking about just, say, the Palouse region, some of these ones that grow a spring pulse, instead of going to this winter pulse, why have they been resistant? Primary thing is, where do they make their money? Okay, They make their money on winter wheat. Another thing is, so they don't want to take out the winter wheat side of things, because we're an area that has grown grass forever, from high production grasslands is what this area used to be. So they don't want to go away from that. So they're like, where do we fit it in our rotation? They're not that concerned about their spring rotation as much, but they want their winter side of things. So then they're like, okay, do we go back in with the winter pea? Sure, you could. That's not a bad idea. But then they're like, okay, we need to deal with certain weeds too. In our area, we have a lot of resistant weeds to different herbicides. One of the weeds that's a major problem here is Italian ryegrass. So they would rather go in with a couple grain crops, get the value out of that, and then go in with either a spring legume or even canola. Sometimes what they'll do is they'll winter wheat, canola, then into a chickpea, something like that. And it's just because of their rotation. It's because of the value. Not that they're not interested. The ones that are interested and psyched about it out of their minds are the ones that are in winter wheat fallow rotations in my area. Really in an area where they don't have that many options. Yes, could they grow winter canola? 
Yes, it can, but winter canola is up and down and it's like it freezes out and they have to plant it early. And is it going to bolt before you go into the winter? And is it going to die over the winter? So winter peas is a fantastic option for them, improving their soil health, getting another crop. So they're super excited. But then we get to another issue there. Have they grown them? They've never grown a legume. To be honest, some of these guys are like, we don't know how to plant them. We don't know how deep to plant them. We don't know, can we even plant them through our drills? It's kind of interesting. They get kind of a little freaked out about it. So the excitement is there, especially in, the, in like I say, in the drier zones, less than, less than 18 inches rainfall. And I would say even if you get into the Montana regions, those kind of things, when you get into lower rainfall areas, I probably the excitement is really high. So it's not just that they don't know how to necessarily plant them, but they're like, okay, how do I market it? And that's a very important question because it's like, you know, you have to have something, you have to have a contract and be able to sell that, you know, whether it's yellow or green peas. You know, they built that huge new fractionation plant in Canada. So can we grow yellows and greens and whatever? Sure. And you can grow winter ones. Is there the market for enough of these greens or a market for the yellows? You know, if you have to ship them off somewhere because we don't have the plants super close to us. Not that they won't produce well and not that they can't plant it into moisture. Those are really not some of the issues. They kind of said, okay, it'll work for us. Just how do we do it? How do we get the markets? And I think that's been the problem with so much more adoption. So even as a company, you know, I talk at times and it's like, I want to look at winter peas. As a research side of things, fantastic. You know, we can look at it and we can see and look at improvements and do variety testing and different inoculants and all this different stuff. But we have to show value to those growers. We can show the values under research side of things, but they have to have that market. And I think that's a lot of the problem. And is it simply a supply and demand thing where spring peas are just meeting the, you know, the overall volume of demand that's out there? Or is it uh, a market specifically for winter pea because of some sort of difference in classification or quality or something? It's an interesting part when you even think of the spring pea side of things. You know, a lot more places grow spring peas. I mean, we used to be number one, well... I know we were number one in green pea production, probably still are in the Pacific Northwest, but we were number one in chickpea production and all these different things in the Palouse region. A lot of that's fallen away. These other states produce them and so forth. Canada produces it, but it's, are we meeting all the needs? No, we're not meeting the needs, especially worldwide needs, not even close. We used to export, I think it was 80%. This was quite a few years back before winter peas even got that popular. And now I think we export around 40 to 60%, something like that, so less. So we have more of a domestic market. And I think that's just how times have changed, be restrictions, tariffs, whatever it is, you know, when it comes to these different legumes. But what always comes down to me, it's kind of interesting. Maybe that's why I love, you know, even from the, extension side of things, education side of things. It comes down to education, figuring out where do we have these markets. 
you know, you ask kind of, are we meeting that demand? I would say no, because we aren't meeting that demand even on when it comes to a lot of these protein additives. You know, that's huge. That is huge, huge market. It's growing. It's becoming bigger. So are we meeting that? No, we aren't meeting that. If we tried to meet all that, we should have 100% domestically and try to be able to ship 100% of the rest of it out. Well, we don't have that kind of production. So we can't do it internationally. We can't do it locally or domestically. So I'm like, okay, how do we change it? And the reason I was going back to that is education. I think we have to educate the people on not only the benefits, not only farming benefits. So that's why I like tying in things. That's why I get into this because I try to tie everything in together. The educational side of things by plant health, soil health, alternative crop health, you know, your rotational crop. Because legumes were always thought that's our rotational crop. It's just a rotational crop. It's just to fill a gap. The way I look at legumes, and that's not how a lot of people look at legumes. I would say the company doesn't look at them that way. There's a lot of people that don't look at them that way. It should be a primary crop, okay? It could be a primary crop just like winter wheat. It comes down to the markets, the education, but it doesn't come down to the demand. I think the demand is there. I think that's where we're wrong because I even see issues when in the grain markets of demand and where things we think we're competing against other countries. It's because we haven't developed the same type of market, maybe the same type of class of crop, but we haven't developed that little market there. And the markets exist on the pea side of things, whether it's yellow or greens, when it comes to human health. It's another thing. I've been always interested in this side of things on the legumes. So I know I'm jumping around when we're talking, but that's the way I want to see it. I want to see it as an entire system. So not only are you with the legume side of things and why I get excited about it is not are you only helping the soil, helping another crop that you're producing, which makes it better, makes it healthier. But what are you doing when it comes to human health? Talk about billions of dollars. I mean, if I could get into the human health side of things, what's better than most of the crops we grow? To be honest, it's peak. If we could market this and people become educated and say, this is one of the most healthy crops that we can produce and improves human health, soil health, crop health, other crop health. I mean, not just a as a rotational crop, but this could be a major crop. That's where I see opportunity. But you still have to go back down there to... Why doesn't it get adopted by growers? Why doesn't this happen? Comes down to a lot of different factors, resistant weeds, but comes down to that, that value. Absolutely. And, and we've touched on several so far, but uh, assuming that the value and the markets you know, are there for certain growers, what other things should they be aware of if they're growing winter peas for the first time? I mean, you talked about seeding depth and some other things, but I'm just curious about what other things might they run into that they say, oh, well, that's different from, you know, uh, spring peas. Well, I don't know if it's different than spring peas. One thing that they're going to have problems with is pea weevil. 
being an entomologist, also in the background, pea weevil is actually truly not a weevil. Pea leaf weevil is, but pea weevil is not. But anyways, it feeds inside the, the actual pea. So at flowering, the adult lays the eggs there, burrows it into the pod, and eats the actual endosperm eats with inside the peas. So then you'll have nothing inside that, that pea. The problem is, is you're going to have that in spring and winter peas. So you will have to control pea weevil. That is going to be a must. Are there other insects that cause problems? Yes, and peas. You know, you can get some viruses. You can get other diseases. But the true one that is the major problem nationwide is going to be pea weevil. So that's going to be one of the issues that they're going to have to deal with. And it's something that has to be addressed from industry, from the company, large company side of things, the Bayers and the BASFs and these types of companies to address these. How do we address these types of pests? Do we have a type of genetic resistance that helps it? Do we have hairy leaves on a plant or whatever to deter some of these insects from feeding on it? That comes down to the research, but you have to have value in that crop to be able to do that research too. They have to make money to do that research. So that's one of the problems they'll come into contact with. Um, are you going to have anything else that I'm thinking of, such as winters, than you are going to have on springs? might have a little bit more disease, but if you use the, the weed issue, to be honest, so you might have a little bit more disease, but have good seed treatment, okay? Seed treatments first off. When it comes to weeds, one of the things you have to have, you need to do pre-emergent herbicides. On a, any of your legumes, that's where it comes down to. But to be honest, that's where you need to look at in the grains too anymore. You know, the time now is to really take care of the problem before you have that problem, not take care of a symptom. Because where we get into problems is trying to do things after the fact that we're starting to get those weeds come up. Take care of that problem first. And that's definitely on the weed side of things. That's where you go. But that's on springs and on winters. But definitely getting the things down just prior to planting or post-plant three. When it comes to weeds, diseases, you know, have good seed coat, put on rhizobium at seeding. I mean, I explained the differences between the winter and spring when it comes to, you know, the yield, the value, amount of nitrogen fixation, you know. Usually we only give credit for peas on nitrogen when it comes to springs. We only give credit at about 30, I think we give 30 pounds per acre. What about uh, lingering questions that are still on your mind about winter pea? You know, what's uh, anything related to the conversation we've had so far? What questions are you still asking yourself or uh, hoping that someone can answer here in the future? You know, maybe it's just because I have an entomology background. I don't know. No, it's what I always ask myself. And it's with all these different crops that I work with. It's how do we look at this? I know we get people get tired of hearing the word sustainable. I like to look at it as ecosystem, okay? Look at it, things in an ecosystem approach. And that's how I look at things. So I say, okay, what do I have to manage the whole thing? What makes the most sense to me when it comes to a crop? That's what I like about peas, to be honest. I think peas are a lot better. Winter peas are better than spring peas. And 
peas in general are better than the other legumes because of weed competition, because of yield, because of nitrogen fixation, all these different things. What one thing would I like to see? I'd like to see adoption by the growers. I'd like to see education change to say, this is really, as an ecosystem, as, as something, if you look at the benefit to continue to be able to farm long-term, this is a great crop that can help you maintain sustainability, if I can say that, but to be more sustainable and to be able to continue to farm in the future. So it's that, and then it comes to the insect side of things. You know, we have to have work done on controlling something that really is very damaging and very limiting in a crop because we don't have anything that's that devastating to wheat that we haven't addressed. Definitely on peas, it's pea weevil that we really have not been able to get control of. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode on winter peas. Thank you very much to Dr. Steve Van Vliet for taking the time to be on the show. Uh, There's a new publication out from Washington State University called Pea Weevil Management in Winter Peas that I'll link to in the show notes for today's episode. And thank you once again to Steve for sharing his years of experience and expertise with us here on today's episode. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the Northern Pulse Growers Association, the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, and the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council. We're releasing these episodes two times per month throughout the season. We want to make sure this information stays relevant to you. So please, please, please take our audience survey. If you didn't hit pause at the top of the show, please hit pause now and take that survey before this disappears off your podcast app. The link is in the very top of the show notes. Also, So leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and feel free to tweet us by using the hashtag Growing Pulse Crops. We'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks.